Hello and welcome to The Intersection of Things, a podcast about technology and how it's changing our lives from an intersectional feminist perspective. I am one half of the pod, Marianela Ramos-Capello. And I'm the other half, Ruth Kustik-Deal. Yeah, what are we talking about this week? What's the what's the dealio? Uh, it's about time we talked about gaming. Gaming. Why? Well, computer games specifically, not board games, not tabletop games. Mm -hmm. I mean, for a start, because I love playing games and I have been enthusiastic to talk about computer games at some point on this podcast for a while. And there's just a really complex and interesting world of things to talk about within that space about how games are made and who's in them and the politics of the stories they're telling and you know all of that is super interesting and then on top of that i guested a little while ago on a podcast called very loose women and when i was on that podcast i met a fellow guest at the same time called marajam who was really really interesting person working on the intersection of politics and computer games and i met her and i thought Hmm. she'd also be a really interesting guest on our podcast. That's so cool. Yeah, no, I find uh, gaming, uh, computer games, or what is that the correct term? Computer games? Yeah, pretty yeah, much. I yeah. mean, you know, technically you can play them on consoles, as so some people say, like, exactly. PC games and console games, but I just still say computer games. Cool. Well, computer games. Yeah, I find them fascinating because they are such an artifact of the today. Like, they're such a cultural creation that's just so representative of where where we are at right now. Um, it involves, like, things like the internet, computers, the the power of the computers that are required to run these games, um, and all of these things that have to come together to make gaming happen and of course because a lot of these things come together they intersect um they intersect in interesting ways and uh yeah i am not a gamer myself but uh you are so let's have this conversation yeah yeah, i was definitely itching to do this one and i've just had like a lot of interesting opportunities recently to talk to people about the politics of games and I think one of the other things that's come up a few times for me is both people being surprised that I play games and I'm always kind of curious about that surprise and also the stereotypes that people have about games and you know what they're about there's still kind of an idea that they're mostly just shooting or even who plays them that it's mostly guys and I think there's a lot of things out there that contradict both of those ideas so that's also kind of why I wanted to talk about them a little bit more and say there's a there's a lot more interesting things to say than that quite simple stereotype of what games are all about. Do video games cause violence? Is video gaming a thing that only boys do? Yeah, this and other things will be talked about. Um, but unfortunately, I was very sick and I could not uh, attend the interview with our guest. But, you know, I listened to it and... Uh, and I can tell it's a really, really cool episode, a really cool interview. And um, is there anything you want to say to introduce our guest? I mean, as I mentioned, Marjam is really, really interesting. She's got so many comments to talk about, not just about what's in games, but about who makes them. She's very curious about the production and the industry itself and the workers' rights and also the subversive ways in which people use games for things that they weren't intended for or expected to. So I think you'll really enjoy this one. Check it out. All right. So without further ado, let's go to the interview. Yeah, so thank you so much for joining me. It's really lovely to have you on the show. I'm doing a lot of nodding. No, no, thank you so much, really. It's a ple- It's an absolute privilege to be invited. Thank you so much for thinking of me. And I think I'm looking forward to an awesome conversation. Sweet, me too. I mean, I literally can spend so much time talking about video games anyway it's just a normal it's just a normal conversation for me yeah likewise to the point where it's probably a bit too much for me so. yeah so before you like go into anything else can you just introduce yourself tell our audience a little bit about you and about your work absolutely thank you hi hello my name is Mariam Dutrikalvita apologies faff of a name but is what it is and I create a, and I'm a freelance content creator on intersection of video games and politics so i do that in variety of mediums uh, mostly that is my little video show called left left up but i also 
and to do guest lecturing and sometimes podcasts, etc. And I've also been blessed enough to be the chair of communications for Game Workers Now International, which is a grassroots movement uh, across five continents now to unionize the video games industry. Ooh, I have to say, I think Left Left Up Up is a genius name for a political show about video games. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you that you got the pun. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so you're talking about working on game workers' rights and unionization and all of that. Obviously, like so it's a huge area, but kind of what brought you to that? And what do you think is specific about video gaming that means it needs unions in an urgent way? For sure. So I've been involved in one activism or another, whether that's housing activism or anti-fascism, for as long as I remember myself. And really, around 2013, it was that I've noticed that, at least in London here, there's this birth of what we now call a, a new trade unionism, which are new, small, radical unions that are really challenging uh, what that can be. So they're not bureaucratic, stale, pale male, but they are younger, they're more diverse, they're more radical. And being sort of working class, I see it's fairly actually from a fairly self selfish point of view. I need a better life, hence unions, you know, deliver that. So I just need to be involved in that. And really, uh, I, and I've been banging on about unionization in the games industry way before it actually even happened, especially in the context of Gamergate and kind of the, the levels of harassment that we're seeing, and yet we didn't necessarily have structures in place. About three and a half years ago, I started covering gaming um, from a political perspective, and then it was just absolutely incredible and out of nowhere, when in March 2018, uh, an incredible group of activists got together at Game Developers Conference in San Francisco uh, after a provocation from IGDA, where they were trying to create, like, do a... Uh, an anti what's what's igda i don't even know what that stands for uh so igda sometimes it's igda so international game developers association which are sort of meant to be you know the ones that are helping out uh, the conditions of the games industry internationally but they were foolish enough and not very clever and they were doing a panel discussion at uh, gdc game developers conference that that was really anti-union that was basically saying you know like just work through your HR departments, you don't need unions, you know, and then I think that was very foolish of them because a lot of people after 50 years of suffering were like, no, no, we, we actually need structures. And it could have just been a flash in the pan, but actually this, the, uh, you know, because the hashtag Game Workers Unite started trending, etc. Uh, we got this cool logo from Scott Benson, creator of Knights in the Wood. But people around the world were sufficiently tired of their working conditions and having no say in them that actually the, the movement just blew up. And now we have 30 chapters in across five continents and even five legal trade unions. So what's been achieved in the space of two years, two or three years is absolutely spectacular. And in terms of why games industry, why do we need it? Sure, there is the stereotype that they seem to be fairly secure, work, secure workplaces, you know, and look, we have a bar or we have like, you know, mini foosball, like, you know, foosball table or, uh, I don't know, we have like no strict uh, dress code or whatever. So there are these little gimmicks that companies will put in in order to sort of reflect a, um, a, a certain culture and as if it's very, very healthy, but actually there are specific specific problems that game workers face that, 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 that can inflict incredible damage on their mental and physical health. So you will, will have definitely heard of the term crunch, where game workers are spending um, 80 to 100 hours a week working, not leaving their desk. You can only imagine what sort of toll that, that leaves on the body and the mind. Uh, sexual harassment is sadly, and, and bullying, sort of boys club is sadly still an, a very underreported, but a and, and a, a per, very pervasive issue in the games industry, uh, a denigration of contracts. So we're seeing more freelance work being brought in, more speculative labor, more uh, outsourcing. So what used to be fairly full-time secure jobs are now getting, you know, the, the, the bosses are actually seeing that the fact that the game workers have passion, they can really abuse that and, and really try and middle, meddle with the contracts, create zero hours contracts, etc. Mass layoffs with no severance pay, is, uh, is sadly a very prevalent issue in the industry as well and really I can go on. I mean it's a kind of classic period um, in which we're living in in which precarious employment is just really common and you know I think what you're saying about 
there's this idea in a lot of jobs where if you love it or you're, you're getting to do something you love, you get to work on a game you love, you know, you're making something super cool that everyone's going to play like Red Dead Redemption, then perhaps there's like a little bit of pressure to say you should just accept this because you get to do something that's so awesome at the end of it. No, absolutely. You know, like the, 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 that is precisely the mantra behind which a lot of this abuse uh, sort of solidifies. Uh, Rockstar often boasts about how their workers are crunching. And obviously, you know, if you're making billions in, pro- in profits, one would say you should just employ more people. <laughs> but, uh, no, that this, is, this, is, this doesn't seem to be the case. But yes, you're correct. It's that pervasive um, feeling of or pushing of of the feeling that one should be lucky to be in this industry that is really destroying us. And there just hasn't been enough class consciousness also, which is kind of our failures as, as progressives. And also a failure of trade union movement, the fact that they haven't been in these spaces to really explain to workers that they are the ones creating massive profits. Yeah, but I think there is something interesting about the players and the workers having more like two-way dialogue. Twitch being the place where people live stream themselves playing games, amongst other things. And there's lots of people who have huge followings. And then some of those people who have the following similar to like YouTube stars or other online celebrities have then joined in with the strikes from the workers as a player strike and I think that's really interesting. Yeah so this I think this happened in 2018 where during the Amazon Prime Day you know and Amazon uh, Amazon owns Twitch and in solidarity with the most precarious and lowest paid workers in Amazon warehouses a load of famous Twitch streamers just, uh, just yes, they 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 organized together and said that we're striking on that day, which was absolutely beautiful to see. Another thing happened when, uh, so uh, you may know that in France there are current mass protests because of the reforms that the president is looking to impose around pensions and the cutting of the pensions. So uh, SDGV, which is an awesome radical trade union, uh, games industry trade union, uh, in France actually uh, were for, for, for hours were streaming on Twitch playing games and contrib- and, and raising money to contribute to a strike fund. Yeah. But as, as you say, I think gaming is, is unique in a sense that the consumer is actually very close to the creator of the product. So mo- a lot of the time, you know, the developers will have a very close relationship with their fans, you know, and that's unique and very different to many other um, industry yeah but yeah i think what was really interesting for instance recently the doom that was meant to come out in november they id software announced that actually it's going to probably take us until march because we don't want our teams to crunch and use and, and precisely they use that language and the overall although it's like the most it was meant to be the most hyped release of 2019 you know overall people uh, the players themselves were, you know, really welcoming these news. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say, let's let's talk about the players because I think there is a stereotypal concept of what a game player is, and it usually is like a straight white boy nerd, maybe someone who's a teenager, and obviously those people do play games. But that's not actually the true demographics of gamers. Lots of studies have said that it's pretty much a 50-50 split and like actually it leans towards more women than more men because of online like mobile games. And certainly some games have really different demographics. But yeah, I was wondering whether you think that games are actually changing in this way in terms of like becoming more inclusive and bringing new people on. And what do you what do you make of your own experience playing these games? Well, uh, so yeah, as, as an avid Quake player, I'm definitely on the front line of like the the, the worst toxicity <laughs> that there can be. So certainly that's still there. I am extremely um, encouraged to hear by you and also other people, you know, from more marginalized genders, etc., saying that they're as of late having better experiences but look i think we the reason why we are now in a better place is because yes there's been a huge uh, diversification of not only characters in games the stories in games and the players themselves in the past 15 years or so i would say that the the moment when things began to change were was twofold in mid-2000s oh one was the birth of mobile gaming, which, as is, as you know, has introduced uh, women players that wouldn't necessarily have the time in their everyday life to be even in playing games. Uh, also, the drop of price of creating a game, so way more people were able to then create indie games. And also the uh, the introduction of Nintendo Wii, I think, has done more for 
changing who a gamer is, then we put we give credit to you remember that iconic uh, iconography of like grandmother like swinging the 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 Nintendo Wii sort of the, in quotation marks tennis bat. It's basically in the past 15 years we've seen this change, so we're now kind of seeing the effects of it, but. The industry is almost 50 years old and up until very recently it was a boys club and you know the games companies also absolutely reproduce this image of of you know we are creating a, a product to a particular market and no that does not include all of you other people but also on the flip side of this look let's not think that these new uh, demographics of people that are playing video games you know the stories for us etc that this is happening out of the kindness of uh, games companies bosses hearts as such no it's profitable they basically realized circa mid-2000s that oh no we are raising this whole the demographic of a consumer that could be buying our products you know so this sort of diversity is very profitable for capitalism and so yes we have more of a choice you know whether that you know we're reproducing the same structures that actually I don't know, destroying a lot of people's lives in the global south out of it, etc. So I'm sort of very, very conflicted in myself. There's always that little bit of conflict. Yes, people are going to make a profit out of telling different stories. But at the same time, it's nice for it to be you or other people who finally get to be featured. You know, you finally get to be the hero. I wonder how much the creators of such games are kind of like already... I don't know, like to be, you know, from a cynical point of view, again, like kind of already preaching to the converted per se, you know, like how much it's actually broadening people's like, or like lessening people's, whether that's homophobia or, or, you know, transphobia, et cetera, you know, like what, or, or are they really reaching audiences to whom that would be useful per se? Also, another thing is like, I sometimes worry when, you know, that there's just this, um, usage of people's struggle to again sell a product and that not necessarily with these games etc but i remember i was talking to sam greer about the tell me why video game which is going to have the first trans hero it's created by the french studio behind the life is strange and you know we're straight away you know saying are they going to have actual trans people in the development team, right? Like a lot of the time mm -hmm. as well, like, or with Lara Croft, right? Which absolutely capitalized on the fact that, you know, she's the first woman hero. Did they have women in the studio making that? Like, or are they just borrowing a struggle a lot of the time? I am more interested, again, in kind of like modes of production and like the power given materially to the people whose uh, identities we're exploring, you know? And, I, and maybe it's actually my sadness that I, I scarcely find gaming as powerful enough to put me into worlds that have not yet been imagined be because I, I worry a lot of the time of like, of what is behind that seductiveness, you know? I mean, my whole master's degree was art and politics and sort of looking uh, whether art can sort of produce social change in any shape or form. And I went into like very, very depressing depths with it all, seeing a lot of political arts being really just a way of, of, of producing social capital to artists, you know, because it's like the edgy cool thing to do at the time. And um, so I sometimes apply that for gaming and, and see very similar parallels. One could say that, you know, they're just sort of producing certain formulae, giving us a perception that we have a choice but really it is within the boundaries of the code as such and we don't necessarily often get to do absolutely everything that we want to do but it gives this fake freedom for us but I don't know <laughs> no that's so interesting because literally that was the next question I was going to ask cool. and I feel really bad that Marinella isn't here because I know she really wanted to talk about exactly that aspect where you're given lots of choices and she was talking to me and asking that question okay but like which things do you get to choose which things are presented to you as the things you have influence on and which things are the ones that they assume are fixed and yeah who is deciding behind the scenes exactly what you're saying like who is it who's writing those choices T tell me more about what you were going to say about the choices section something that's um sometimes called procedural rhetoric this whole idea of uh, kind of eon bogus to coin this term and his his whole shtick is that games are more profound than other cultural forms because of you know whether that's still a code there's still a level of level of choice that we have to interact with uh, so procedures in place but that we get to choose and hence that is somehow meant to uh, 
sort of inspire critical thinking, etc. Again, a lot of the time we're playing within the within the boundaries, as as you say, of of the creators. So there isn't that much choice. But I don't think that's all the games. I think it really depends on the games. We tend to group, you know, oh, MRPGs, that's it. But I think of you know of Second Life, for instance, which was such an open format. Uh, and such a wild west that people did all sorts of surreal stuff in it. Sometimes, yes, it fell into complete chaos. So new forms of economy and capitalism has actually developed. People have like found each other in different and, and, and like we're creating parties and absolutely surreal stuff in it and like levels of creativity in Second Life to me are absolutely fascinating. And also when I think of like social change within video games, to me the most optimistic and that's like my own hypothesis, I don't know how true it is, but to, to me the most powerful tool that games can have is an ability to give players the choice to self-organize. So within the platforms that are given, if you can create like, yeah, spaces for self-organization, then that sort of attempt to build a better tomorrow or like a space for that actually develops. Examples. I was just going to yes. say, do you have an example? Yes. Brilliant. Yes. Uh, so, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, so Ultima Online uh, was, this is not really played as much anymore, sadly, but an awesome MORPG. And for instance, and again, there are different guilds, etc. And um, at some point, one of the kind of biggest guys, he was called Lord British. He was actually quite close to the developers of the game. So there was a bit of cheating and so everyone else in the game got together and like raided his castle, drank his wine, smashed like, and this is all in game. So in that smash out, drank his wine, smashed his furniture, and like absolutely kind of like looted his castle. And I think again that sort of protesting game, which which really to me is really really fascinating. Also, Westward Journey was a game very very popular in China, and there were huge protests taking place in game to the point where it like broke the servers, etc for what they perceived to be a, a pro-Japanese narrative. And again, the game wasn't built for any of that. It just happened. People took you know, what was meant to be, again, a fairly, I guess, a war game and turned it into a space of reproduction of social, you know, just social reproduction, et cetera. Kind of, yeah, as I say, when it's just the platform that's created by a game, but then what happens inside and in completely, and when it's subversive to what the game was mm. meant to do, what the developers, said that the game is meant to do when that those rules are subverted i think there's a mass fascinating space for that sort of critical thinking and less and less now though i think because i think game makers they realize that giving too much freedom to a player can lead to a breaking of the game and they don't want they don't want that wow that's so interesting i mean i do hear about the kind of modding communities yeah which i think are fascinating so also totally. just to explain there's often options in games or people find options in games to change the look, the feel, some of the rules maybe, for instance, the gravity in um, a sort of simple example, maybe you find a way to adjust it so that whenever you step, you actually leap really high into the air. Or you can do things, what you call like skinning, which is changing the look of a place. So maybe you kind of change it from being a medieval setting to being a future setting. Yeah, again, interesting ones of like people recreating recoding video games within video games so that sometimes happens in like awesome uh games done quick etc but again another another problem then gets hit isn't it fascinating and kind of sad all of the time as well modders are now creating tutorials for games because so often like game makers are not even making tutorials anymore so what what i'm saying is that game development companies a lot of the times the triple a ones are now relying on modern communities to enhance the game because they don't want to you know they don't want to spend money on that etc and then we hit this sort of final problem in general of with MMORPGs. Yes, we get given the platform and that's just how I sort of see that term like platform capitalism or whatever. But it is the players themselves that, that are actually creating the value to make the game interesting so that other people then join and play it because no MRPG is is of any use without the players in it right without the stories that are happening that without the mythology without the you know you aestheticizing your character making it beautiful etc oh they only exist because the player com completes them so for instance I like this quote by technology expert Tom Godwin. He observes that Uber, the world's largest taxi company, owns no vehicles. Facebook owns no media. 
Airbnb owns no hotels. And so, yeah, how does this relate to video games industry and how it could help in the fight for, you know, for better, I guess, better tomorrow. So us understanding that we have that power to to create value for these games. So we are kind of workers in them. And what does that mean? You know, isn't it maybe perhaps all of these MRPGs just train us to be better workers, etc. La la. <laughs> wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. Again, like to keep giving personal anecdotes. But I mean, I often say that video games are what held my university friends together after uni. That's because awesome. everyone lives in different places but they get on the headset and play team games together. And in between fighting and killing people, you have a few moments to say, how are things going, mate? You know? Yeah. And I think like that kind of frequent gaming put people together in a group call that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily be organizing like a weekly group call between your old friends from university. But the game is actually the mechanism to do that. No, definitely. Like I, it's a huge tearjerker for me. At least once every three months, there will be a story on like BBC or The Guardian of a gamer that wasn't able to like, I don't know, leave home for one reason or another. And then perhaps their health turns to worse and they meet their and you know their, their their last final days or something and they meet their all of their online playing colleagues that they never met before you know and stuff like that and and in general just just it's an incredible space of community building etc but again i feel like it is you guys by being awesome that are enriching the game you know rather than a lot of the time i think game companies can be quite cynical and sort of like rely 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 on that and rely on online online communities that's why you know i kind of think community management is such a like an important aspect of games industry and such a like underappreciated um job as such well not just because because i'm i'm applying to some right now (laughs) (laughs) but (laughs) applying to some community management positions not just because of that but also no in general i think like uh, a strong um, community to a game delivers so much and any good company will really will really invest in that right yeah i mean across the internet moderators are doing incredible work you know that that's a huge huge topic to open well, up like about so that. depressing i've seen so many mods just like have nervous breakdowns as well because they're just punching bags a lot of the time right and like they have to police so much terrible stuff and like if something goes wrong or if they don't see something then it's always on them like it's terrifying like i i so respect and i can never imagine being a mod to any of my discord chats or or any forums because to me it just sounds like the worst and again a lot of the time these are volunteers and wow 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 the one thing that i was thinking about is back on this question around how people in wider society view games and i was thinking about this again because i read an article about how recently in india they banned young people from playing a battle royale style fighting game called player unknowns battlegrounds which I haven't played, but I've heard is similar it's to PUBG, isn't it? Yeah, PUBG. Yes. To it. Yeah. Yes. Oh, um, seriously, they banned it. That's really interesting. Just for a short period of time, they said, so that people could focus on their exams. Mm. And actually, a young law student, like a 19-year-old, um, took them to court and won the case, and the ban was overturned. And I'm going to put the uh, the article about this in the show notes as well. But I found it really fascinating because when I was reading the article, I was thinking again about how there's this idea that video games are so dangerous, like they're going to stop people doing well in their exams or people are going to be addicted to them. Or there used to be a lot more dialogue, I think, about this idea that video games cause violence and they were referenced in the wake of school shootings in the US. And there still seems to be a kind of fear that video games have a huge influence on especially young people and mean that they won't be able to make sensible life choices if they play video games. And it surprised me to see it happening in such a specific way to say like one specific game is going to be banned. And I was wondering whether you had any thoughts about why is there still such a a kind of moral panic around computer games specifically? God, I get so frustrated by this conversation. Like I really wish more time and energy was spent into looking at the toxicity of gaming communities and, uh, and the kind of like 
real uh, entrenchment of fairly terrible ideologies within there rather than this whole like addiction side of things with addiction side of things i used to say i don't think it's a thing now i'm just sort of a bit more careful with my wording and i say yes of course compulsive behaviors may take place a lot of the time those are symptoms of wider mental health problems and or uh, again it's tricky to say parenting issues but like i suppose a, a certain loss of, of of control there but uh, we have gamers quoting gaming memes and being like subscribed to PewDiePie and then going to a synagogue and or 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 a mosque and shooting people there and we're kind of addressing that way less than all of this like oh my kid is playing Fortnite a bit too much you know how my uh, parents dealt with this because I was mm, circa age 13 14 I'd say I was fairly addicted to video games they kind of instilled critical thinking in me they were like you know what the company that made your game they want you to be this way. Every choice that you're making here, you think you're making it yourself, but really it is the company that has certain, they, they have put in certain mechanics in the game that keep you addicted. So yeah, of course, if you want to be a slave to a company, go ahead, you know, but wow. that's, yeah, yeah. But like, and to me, cause you know, ever the rebel at 14, I'm like, no, no, I'm not in control. No, no one's controlling me. Yeah. You know, and that kind of made me think a lot more about these things. And actually I kind of, stop playing as much as I was because I was like oh yeah well that's what they want me to do and like of course I'm not going to do that <laughs> so that kind of worked on me which was kind of cute I, yeah, and again I have to be careful with my words I'm back a couple of years back I used to say way more like oh you know but it's just because you know the parents are kind of like perhaps not giving as much time to their kids or something and or panicking over that but no you know compulsive behaviors happen for all, all range of of issues and a lot of time as well you know people that are perhaps struggling to find friends offline then find those communities online and those are way more social and they find their project and community etc and having a community is very important so i completely understand why people would then tend to um fall into uh, you know spending too much time there another thing is with most games as they are right now we are meant to you know achieve a, a lot a certain achievement and or win at, in some sort of way and when we don't win we feel bad about ourselves i think about you know the times i spent too much gaming until like 6 a.m or whatever i felt terrible afterwards and i used to think it's because of you know a social stigma because i was gaming and i felt guilty over it but no more and more i thought about it it's just like in xcom 2 and or Frost, uh, Frostpunk, you know, I really was just like kept on losing. And because I was losing, I wanted to win more. So it was a loop of me feeling like a loser that was actually making me feel bad. And so we just, we basically want to win. And, and, the, and the more time, we, and then we just spend so much time trying to win. So yes, yeah, so all these different elements together. But as I say, I, I kind of wish that we spent way more time talking about like really toxic ideologies within these things rather than the time spent. Talk talk about the to do you want oh. to talk about the toxic <laughs> ideologies in games? You just said this way you want to talk. Did you know did you know that there's there was even a whole a whole side of Minecraft where there were like Minecamp server created there where all the like neo-nazis were um indoctrinating like nine-year-olds and stuff like that. You what? Know? So yeah we're seeing far right like reaching parts of gaming that you wouldn't even think of like again i will send you I'll, I'll give you an article to put in show notes i think about this particular side of minecraft but yeah i think in our absence as progressives in this huge cultural superstructure that is gaming a political vacuum has evolved and i think the far right has been way more in, in tune and more clever in noticing that that they can actually establish infrastructures and we create an effect in radicalization rather than, than we have. So we really, by the time 2014 rolled in, it was kind of too late. You know, you did have uh, people like Milo Yiannopoulos and Steve Bannon actively engaging with the heads of like gaming subreddits, etc., and pushing their ideology through. And as progressives, we were completely caught off guard, you know, whereas this entrenchment uh, has been taking, you know, has been taking place for decades now. Yeah, I mean, you're referencing Gamergate which I think we mentioned right at the very start. Um, and we weren't really sure whether we even wanted to talk about Gamergate because it's kind of like a spell where when you say the name, terrible people arrive out of nowhere and harass you. 
So yeah, I think give... it's less now. There was this last whole discussion on Gamergate after Peter Coffin's comments like two weeks ago, and I think everyone's been saying a Gamergate. So I think it's kind of by the end at the end of it. But who knows? We'll see. So I mean, if we were going to try and really quickly summarize what it is for people who have just like heard the term but not really sure what it was about, there was a guy who was the ex-boyfriend of a gamer. He posted up a thing blaming her in his leaving of their relationship, posted a lot of hateful stuff about her, and including claiming that she had got reviews, like good reviews for her video game in exchange for sleeping with people, which was a lie. And he riled up a load of people saying she was a terrible person and encouraged people to target harassment at her. And it snowballed from there into a kind of sense of outrage nonsense that women in computer games don't deserve to be there. And uh, yeah, it's it's a struggle now. I'm trying to, oh, sorry, that wasn't a very good summary. Um, no, I think you did as good of a job as any, anyone would. You know, uh, Zoe Quinn, the woman in question, created a game called Depression Quest, which was talking all about mental health issues. And needless to say, for the hardcore gamers that don't necessarily see this as a game, that was, again, that was uh, quite a, a trigger, <laughs> if I may say so. They were triggered. <laughs> By, by that but look again like I think these sort of gamer gates well I mean that was the most successful attempt and I think it's precisely because it had quite a few like active far-right people behind it they were trying to do Gamergate number two like in August of last year right when there was the game uh, sort of games industry me too moment where a few game develop women game developers uh, women and non-binary game developers uh, came out with stories of, of sexual harassment in the workplace and or by colleagues uh, or other game makers and they just failed because they just didn't have that infrastructure behind them per se so I think it was a basically kind of all the properties that could have gone could have aided that endeavor in 2014 they were all in place and just very healthy at the time I go as far as saying that th that brought us the election of Donald, Donald Trump in 2016 two years later because uh, it was fascinating. It, it, they just basically found a way to create these like wasp swarms. You know, I don't even call them call them bee swarms because bees are actually cool and nice and bring honey. They're like wasp swarms that were able to just bite wherever they wanted to and engage in the sort of troll culture that we've seen a peak of. Yeah, definitely. And it's like real fascism. I don't know, like, and no one talks about it. It's really weird. It's like, we have like real fascism in, in our milieu and it's, I don't see it actually, especially now with like Brexit land, etc. Like I don't even see the end of it. Um, and it's really, really terrifying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in the like the current political situation that we're in, I definitely think that Gamergate led to a lot of it. I agree. I, there's some some quite scary stuff about the mobilization tactics were then used in all of these elections. And actually, these same groups didn't just get involved in Donald Trump or Brexit, but also in like elections in Brazil and in France um, were mobilized too. Um, yeah. I definitely hope that I, that I think a lot of communities have learned from it. I wouldn't say everyone's obviously got everything perfect because this is still the situation we're in. But I do think that there were a lot of people realizing how much they had ignored things that like a lot of these online communities like Reddit and gaming spaces at least were trying to recognize like far too late the role that they had in all of that but i mean also like game companies had like so much really um nurtured the the type of toxicity in their communities that they never necessarily took uh blame for and it, it's kind of depressing for sure i mean what do you see as the thing that they should be doing in 2020 just zero tolerance towards any any abuse you know like i report a gamer and perhaps they will be you know they'll be blocked for 24 hours or something i say no with certain comments and that that's a lifetime and you know like just zero tolerance towards any of this bullshit i mean it's bullying is what it is and if we want to create a safe environment um then you know you you ban ip addresses you know there are ways of doing this they just don't want to lose clients but they knew that that's where their profits are that they knew that that's where their consumer is and they didn't want to alienate them and i don't know like i think it's important to be on the right side of history especially because this is how these worldviews are are um like I'm the sort of person that is very much believes in no platforming, you know, you don't want to mesthetize um, a certain totalitarian viewpoint as such. And I, I think that gaming as culture is that 
the people creating these pro objects are social enterprises with their own responsibility and sometimes profits have to be put aside you know when what we're seeing is like a snowballing effect of yeah. the birth of certain politics yeah i mean i think the thing about profits is interesting because when i played overwatch a lot I remember the developer putting up a video that said, right now we want to create lots more features for the game. You know, we want to create new characters, but we're spending loads of our time on dealing with abuse and bad behavior in the game. And we're having to spend our development time on creating all of these new features. And they put in so many features to try and reduce harassment, you know, like giving people ratings and you could create a system where only people who have like a four or above rating could play within your game and, you know, various kinds of reporting structures. And they're like, if you guys just stop being dicks, we could make more game for you. Please just, just try. And I thought it was really interesting that they did this sort of like, one, obviously direct outreach, but two, was saying like, you are getting a less good game because we spend our money on building features to stop you being assholes. If we didn't do that, we could build more stuff for the game. So <laughs> yeah, it's not, basically, it doesn't actually help them to have this because they don't improve the game and then the game gets a bad reputation. Yeah, it's so interesting because like Overwatch is owned by Blizzard, right? And Blizzard owns yeah. also so many titles where they don't do any of that. I think the reason why they're trying it out with Overwatch is because they know it has like a fairly, it, it does have like a broad spectrum of, of players and people were leaving the game because there was harassment, you know, and they wanted to address that. But it's not like they're blanket doing it for all their games. They're just sort of looking at who's playing their game, which is so cynical come to think of it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's very interesting when you look at the difference between the different games that they own, that they've created mm -hmm. this kind of atmosphere and branding for Overwatch, that it's a fun, inclusive, cheerful game. You know, the characters, although it's a shooting game, there's no blood. It's, it's really just kind of very upbeat. Um, like the poster person for the game is a lesbian character, which is amazing. But yes, that's not the only game that they own. And they've sort of gone like, this is this is the queer gamers game. Um, no, like they also own, yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> yeah, and they own like also like StarCraft, World of Warcraft, etc. Like, and they are not really implementing any of that there. Anyway, we've um, we've gone on for a good while, which has been amazing. But I, I have like more questions I wanted to ask you, but I'm going to try and like put my my wrap up i had two wrap up questions so what is your origin story how did you come to be doing what you're doing and also if you were going to recommend a game that someone listening to the podcast should play who hasn't played games before what would you suggest okay doc, so i'll answer the first one the last the second one first because it's in my head and stuff untitled goose game sick game and like incredible aesthetic it's also it's also one of those games where i think it it encourages a certain critical thinking as well and i think uh yeah it's like a pesky awesome aesthetic but also like a, a pesky goose that really was domesticated against its will and taking power back that's how i see it <laughs> and also the creators of it are actually like for all of my you know criticism of like the games companies and or even the indie companies like they are solid i think they're called house house australian company and they are they are explicit with their politics and for instance they announced the other day that they one percent of all their profits will go towards indigenous people's fight you know like so again they're taking and they the game is not even that political the game is not political at all really but the modes of production are and to me that's so exciting and interesting and i think we need to be encouraging companies like that that do take politics seriously within their actual ranks you know rather than like in the output of the game and sometimes the company itself can be quite dodgy etc uh, so yeah, Untitled Goose Game, I think is, 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 is to me, is game of 2019 through and through. Right, and then my origin story, I don't I mean, Eastern European, economic migrants to UK, arrived here when I was 17, uh, was kind of probably because of parents or whatever, fairly in political circles all the time. But yeah, went through a pretty shitty time from just like, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union, no jobs, parents, um, kind of educated in theater criticism but never got to do it and and uh, my mom just worked in a factory in Liverpool sewing like uh, life jackets for for a good couple of years when we first moved here 
I learned the language in like Latham sixth form in East London. And it was tricky couple of years, definitely first couple of years of moving here. But I was lucky enough to sort of get into some fairly good schools like Central St. Martins and then Goldsmiths afterwards. So I got good education. But sadly, still to this day, no necessarily good, good, good job after it. But about three and a half years ago, I, I kind of came out as a gamer. And although I, so I squatted for about eight years in London and so I was gaming secretly, but but all the lefties would judge me, all the anarchists would judge me, etc. But I started covering games and politics, um, just sort of really looking at things a section of two about three years ago via various mediums and bit by bit just kind of growing my audience. And recently I also launched a Patreon and that seems to be also, uh, you know, picking up speed because I think a lot of people just think that we do need that sort of more, um, you know, and I know that a lot of the time it's a bit contrarian or whatever, or reactionary, you know, my sort of voice, but I'm just sort of trying to push the overtone window, what is possible within this industry. And um, yeah, and some, be sassy all at the same time and have fun and kind of like promote the politics of, 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 of pleasure and seduction uh, and drinking Negronis all at the same time. <laughs> Amazing, amazing. Yeah, I mean, you've reminded me that the other really important thing is where should people find you? Thank you. Yes. So uh, you can find me on Twitter at Mariam Did. Mariam has a J, so M A R I J A M D I D. Please check my uh, show called Left Left Up. Uh, Anarchoagonions is my sex and relationships advice show that I do on the side. <laughs> and uh, yeah, of course, if you have some spare income, check out my Patreon as well. All the links are on uh, on my website, etc. All the links are on my Twitter, which I suppose is where I centralize all of my um, uh, all of my lovely viewers and listeners and stuff. Thank you so much. This has been awesome. And that was the interview. That was really awesome. Uh, Wow, so much to think about, talk about, um, so many cool things. Is there anything in particular, Ruth, that um, you're taking with you after this this conversation? Yeah, I enjoyed doing that so much. I had a really nice time talking to her. So thanks again for joining us. Gosh, I took away a lot of things. Like, I really, really loved all of that stuff about games being used in ways that weren't intended and organizing protests within games that bit about a group of people drinking all the wine and smashing all the furniture that was pretty cool yep yeah it's just like awesome that was so much fun and i also really liked that question about when you use people's stories to be a plot for a game when you're talking about other people's lives or other people's tragedies are you involving those people in their creating and are you giving them power in how the stories are told i thought that was a really interesting question and then overall the whole thing made me think quite complex feelings about interrogating something that i love so much and afterwards when I was reflecting I was like it's a little bit like fashion for me because I also love fashion and clothes and I love looking at runway shows and magazines and yet at the same time I know that the industry has a lot of problems right from the production of garments to the casting of models and the treatment of people in fashion houses and I still love admiring a beautiful Valentino jacket and I think the games industry is perhaps like that for me like I love looking at it and I love playing it But I have to also recognize the parts of it that are not as good and are deserving of criticism and really we should be holding them to much higher standards. But yeah, it was interesting to kind of deal with that conflict within myself and recognize some moments where I felt a bit defensive of something I love so much. Yeah. What about you having listened to it? What did you think? Oh God. Uh, I mean, the first thing that, that came to my mind was... I'm taking away I'm like I'm really appreciating the complexity of this conversation and how like looking at video games kind of brought up questions like what does it mean to have the opportunity to play with like queer characters and I think that you mentioned about like exploring identities and um kind of trying to get to experience things that in the quote-unquote real world or in the meat space as people call it um, you would not be able to experience so that's one thing but at the same time while you can have all of these cool feminist queer characters um, and experiences 
just the realization that whoever is making the video games are not 100% that and that the choice to have that tone or those storylines at the end of the day were, was an economic choice and you can um, argue that by seeing at what other kinds of games they produce and how these other kinds of games or these other games are just not they're not basically caught with the same scissors just to continue your fashion <laughs> uh, metaphor and it's it's just fascinating right because I'm, I'm kind of challenged to think about gaming in this way of like well it's super cool like what does it mean for us to have justice values be important enough and value like literally in the capitalist world valuable enough to bring them to the forefront in a game and on the other hand are we is this another kind of rainbow washing sort of is this another kind of pink washing and and is this just you know um capitalism just finding or monetizing the movements that that are represented in this game so i think i i really like that push and pull and i found games and gaming and the gaming industry and the gaming communities to be a really cool point of intersection again of um all of these these things and i think the second thing that maybe you touched here and there was just this element of gaming that's just the element of play. Um, that's one of the things that I find fascinating about gaming, right? Like, the act of playing. Play is such a human activity. I mean, you can see puppies and other small animals play and, I mean, role-play fights and stuff like that. And using play as a way of learning, uh, learning empathy, like how does it feel to be X or Y. Um, learning to fail and to try again. And I just find it fascinating that video games, computer games, are such a, a, are a point where you can bring in play beyond childhood. You bring it into the teenage years, into adulthood, and you continue into the, in this, I don't know, practice of make-believe and trying things within a safe, I mean, asterisk there because of toxic communities and stuff, but relatively speaking, within a safe environment. So... Mm. Yeah, just play is such a beautiful thing. And uh, and I just find it fascinating that this cultural product kind of like brings all of these complexities of life together. So yeah, it was pretty awesome. Wow, yeah, plus, plus 100 on that. I really agree with you about the play thing. I actually went to an exhibition about the history of the concept of play recently. It wasn't mm. just the history of play. It was the way we talk about play in society and how that's changed. And... There was a nice bit at the beginning where they had a video play show, showing lots of children talking about play. And one kid said, if I wasn't playing, I'd be wasting my time. And I just thought, oh, I love it. Yeah. Beautiful. I, I want to hear more about that exhibition, but maybe that's for another time. Cool. Is there anything else that, that you want to add to this? No, I think we've said a lot. I think there's a lot for our listeners to go away with and look forward to hearing your thoughts on the podcast. Yeah, please leave us a review or comment on what you think about games with all of the different things that we brought up. You can find us on all our social media doobly things. Yeah, to borrow a page from SciShow Tangents, if you want to suggest a topic just leave it in a review <laughs> um, and we'll look at the reviews yeah and uh, we'll, we'll look at that other than that where else can they find our footnotes ruth they're all on the website the intersection of things.com cool and if they want to tweet at us they can find us at things intersect cool uh, Ruth, do you want to be found? I love to be found on Twitter and nowhere else uh, where you can call me at nescient n-e-s-i-e-n-t Call you, you. Marinella. I, I don't like phone calls. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I said call. It's, it's all right. Talk it's, to me. Uh-huh. <laughs> don't call me. Yeah, you can you can at me with gifts at undaced and such on Twitter. Cool. And this episode was uh, brought to you by the two of us. And the music is by David Mark Hucklesby. Yeah, shout out to my computer fan for also being part of this episode and every other episode. Our biggest fan so far. <laughs> <laughs> The most outspoken (laughs) fan we have. Um, Cool. Thanks to our guests. We're going to leave um, their info in the the footnotes so you can find her. And uh, she has an amazing video show with more of the conversations that you heard today, which you can find on her social media, which we will link to. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you, Ruth, for spending your evening with me. Likewise. It's always good to podcast with you. Bye. Bye.